Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right? right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is really good. Move, get out of there. Here we go. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Uh, I am your host, Jane Prater, and I'm joined by my host, Patrick Green. Hey, everybody. And this evening, we are um, pleased to have an honor guest on our show, Diane O'Bannon, Dan O'Bannon's wife. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we've, of course, been talking to you for a while, uh, or for a little bit, and uh, we're just, it's just a great, it's, it's a great treat for us to have you on the show. Well, it's really delightful that you've asked me. I enjoy it very much. Fantastic. This interview, actually, we're starting a series called The Forbidden Planet. Uh, that's the series that we're going, it's called The Forbidden Planet, 40 Years of Alien. And we thought about, I, I, I thought about that title before I had spoken to you and you gave me that quote uh, that we'll get to in a little bit. But really, um, there's a lot going on right now. There's a, a new documentary that's, I think, premiering this evening in, at... Um, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow night. Is it tomorrow night, okay. Yeah. Um, called Memory, the Origins of Alien, which we certainly want to talk about. Um, but before we do, my first question is, how you met Dan, and what, what, what is that story? Well, uh, I was at USC. I was working there, and um, I was uh, married to uh, another film student at the time, and I used to uh, do acting and things uh, in, in the student films. This was before they had professional actors that would like to work with students. It was really rough and tumble at USC. The film department was in the stables and uh, pretty run down. But uh, so I was just hanging around and acting in films and things like that. And I met him there. He was a pretty remarkable person. And what were your first impressions of him? I'm just curious. Well, uh, he was wild. He he was really a unique person, obviously extremely bright and uh, full of ideas. The uh, ideas were just pouring off of him all the time, and he spoke about them all the time. Really unique ways of thinking and ways of doing things and, um, you know, totally uh, focused on science fiction and horror, that sort of thing, so... Before we get into the deeper stuff, uh, you we were you talking about kind of what you wanted to what's kind of going on now. We can kind of talk about memory in the beginning, and then we can kind of move on to kind of other things. Uh, you know, what, like what you think about your husband when what you know when when you do think about him, what kind of comes to mind. But sort of what's how did memory the origin the origins of aliens start? How did it come about? Well, uh, uh, Alexandra Philippe contacted me about uh, doing a um, 
documentary about uh, how alien, what were the origins of alien actually. And I was, so I was very open to that. But in terms of uh, uh, how did the idea start, it comes from a story that he wrote called Memory. And Memory is basically the first half of Alien. Uh, almost straight and direct, except it's called memory because the crew members who land on the planet uh, gradually lose their memories. This was the original thing, and that's where he he sort of broke off because it wasn't a very uh, fruitful uh, thing to um, uh, to pursue. But that translated perfectly well, you know, into the first half of Alien when he sort of made it into his monster movies. Well, he, he used to call it his haunted house film. You know, he always wondered why people just didn't leave the haunted house. So he said, well, I put it in space. They can't go anywhere. So, but um, <laughs> That's the, awesome. point. <laughs> yeah, the original idea uh, that he had, he wrote to a friend in a, a letter. And the original fra fragment of a story is, uh, you know, there's people in a spaceship and they get a signal from this planet. Uh, and it repeats over and over again. And so they go down to investigate, but they don't decipher the uh, message until the guys get on the planet. And then they, when they decipher it, they tell the crew that the, the message says, do not land, do not land, do not land. So that was his first fra you know, fragment of an idea on which the whole of ev everything was based. That's pretty that's, actually terrifying to think of, like, uh, yeah. th that that first idea of, of the, the warning is like, don't come here, don't come here. Right. I mean, that's terrifying. And, and you're already there. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Exists, right, right. You know, it, it exists there in a way. It's like, don't come here. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of, um, I don't know if it was the first, if it was 2001 or 2010, where there's a signal saying, all the planets are yours except for one, Europa. It is mine. Do not land there. Um, it just, Ooh. that's, it reminds me of that just a little bit like this, this kind of like dire, dire warning. Oh yeah, totally. Wow. Well, yeah. So it's a, yeah, it was a good scary idea and it has, it has a lot of scary ideas in it and, and very few fake scares. It's, it really grabs you, does Alien. The, the, I call it. We, I call it the monster from my husband's id. You know, you talk about Forbidden Planet, the monster from the id. That was one of Dan's favorite films, and uh, so we we sort of uh, uh, we have the monster from my husband's id hanging around. I say I say to my son people, my son sometimes people, you know, it's kind of like having a rather embarrassing uncle along all the time. You know, yeah, this is my son Adam. <laughs> Here's the monster from my husband's id, the xenomorph, and here's my nephew John and his wife. That's you know? awesome. So he's he's sort of always with us, and uh, he works very hard. What is it, Randall? Sir, radar just picked up something. Where away? At the head of the arroyo. Moving. This way, sir, slowly. Automatic control. Is it surreal at all that that your husband's id monster has become 
almost like a universal shorthand for a lot of really deep primal fears that seem to be sort of universal. And I mean, there's a reason why, why the xenomorph has become such a member of sort of the collective consciousness of the world. I mean, you know, it's a really effective monster. Is it strange ever to just see how ubiquitous it's become in culture? Uh Yes, and it really was at first, and uh, when it, uh, of course, Dan was alive when this started really rolling, and he was completely flummoxed by it, uh, and uh, he felt great about it, you know, I mean, he thought that was that was good, he really uh, hit the nail on the head, but that's the kind of guy he was, I mean, he could, he could really dig it right there, you know, uh, if there's no real horrifying monster, there's no hero. You know, your your monster has to be out for himself all the way. So I think Dan put, you know, that monster's out out totally for himself. There's no hedging on the on this. Uh, this <laughs> right. You know, he's you're uh, not going to bargain with it. Yeah. No, no, the idiot can't throw him off with the track. You know, he's he's <laughs> going there, and that's why uh, you know uh, Sigourney Weaver so is so heroic. He's a bad monster, so you have a good hero. <laughs> That's true. So were you like, well, in terms of like the, the idea for the documentary, where did that come from? Who's who, who germinated that? Well, that was uh, Alexander Philippe and, um, uh, exhibit a productions, their, their picture company. He, he's done a couple of other things. Most recently was the, uh, sort of taking apart Hitchcock's murder scene in uh, psycho and that got very good reviews. Very interesting. It's I think I don't think it's online, but no, um, I think it was on Netflix at one point. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. It's, it, it pops up because I didn't catch it that first time around, and I remember thinking, "Oh man, it looks so cool." Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, really, it's really amazing. Yeah, it is interesting to to watch him and uh, take it apart and look at all the the angles of it. And he, I think he thought to do that with Alien as well, but then found a different trail to follow that was a bit more interesting in how this came about and the beginnings of it. So that's what we did. And, and I was very happy that, um, that it was uh, Alexander at uh, Exhibit A, very nice, nicely done, a good filmmaker. Now, for the record, uh, just because, you know, you, you've seen, I'm sure you, who have seen and heard everything in terms of the alien world and what people have said and accounts for this and that and, wasn't it uh, Dan who found H.R. Geiger first? Giger, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A Giger, uh, Dan ran into Giger's artwork for the first time when he was in Paris with uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky uh, on the first. It, it, Jodorowsky was going to film Dune. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Jodorowsky's work at all, but he's a very eccentric filmmaker. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah, we love him. Yeah, he's great. And um, you you co-produced the documentary on him, right? Didn't you? Um, no. On his, oh, no. Okay. I, th- no, I don't I know what's in your name either. Okay. Do with that. But, um, yeah, so uh, Jodorowsky came over in 74 and was looking for effects people to work on Dune in Hollywood. And he looked around at um, the people and didn't wasn't happy. But at FilmX, they were screening uh, Dark Star with Dan O'Bannon as pinback and Dan had done all these special effects. So Yodorowsky was very impressed with the special effects and got in touch with Dan and said, come over to Paris and make my movie. I want you to do the effects. And he was highly flattered and uh, went over to Paris 
And while he was there, uh, uh, Giger had an exhibit and he went to the Giger exhibit and was knocked on his fanny and said, this is like the most fabulous uh, stuff I've ever seen. If this guy made a monster for a monster movie, the world would be uh, shattered. And he was right. So when he got a chance to, uh, uh, you know, when he wrote Alien and it actually uh, got, was edging towards production, he uh, contact, uh, talked Ridley into, say, looking at Giger's work. He said, you got to use this guy for the monster. So he managed to convince the producers at Brandywine, uh, Gordon Carroll, uh, to uh, to do that. And um, uh, so that's that's how Giger got on the picture. Dan would have, you know, given his right arm to, to do that. And uh, fortunately, he didn't have to do that. And that happened. It is the future. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps. A new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. Uh, I, I want to mention that USC, down at the University of Southern California, is having a 40th anniversary exhibit in um, the, you know, at their School of Cinematic Arts, where they are having a lot of props and things like that. And I've just sent them some interesting things, one of which is a Polaroid of Giger wearing the face hugger, trying it on. Oh, wow. And uh, also the letter that Dan wrote to Giger, you know, saying... Uh, yes, we want you. Here are the things we need, and and some quick sketches from Dan that are really funny about what the monsters have to, what the first two incarnations, and what the egg and what the face egger have to look like, and the thing that pops out. Uh, but he, but Dan told Giger, he said, you know, I'm not going to even suggest what the final monster should look like. I don't want to influence your thinking at all let your imagination run wild. So it's kind of an interesting document to look at. You know, I, I was thinking about what you were saying about how the xenomorph is sort of sprung from the id of, of Dan. And I'm thinking, it. I think part of why it works so well is that it also, from a design standpoint, sprung from the id of Giger, which was sort of where everything that he did came from, you know, like the sort of very primal kind of nightmare scape. Yes. Um, and I think that there's something about the fact that that both Dan's vision for this film was so strange and so interesting and unlike other things that had come before. And Giger's design for the, for the monster was very strange and very alien. And I think the merging of those two things is sort of indelible. I think that's like a big strength. Did he, um, <clears throat> did he have a lot of like nightmares that you can remember that inspired any of this? Like, did he ever wake up and say like, Oh, I have this idea for a film. You know, I, I dreamt about it. Uh, well, not directly, uh, really, although he did have some really kind of interesting future dreams sometimes where he would be like awakened in the future and told things, things like this. So, so uh, he, he had several dreams like that, but I don't know. Wow. But no, he didn't have nightmares. But when he was writing, uh, he, he liked to write at night because there were no interruptions and you're completely unaware of the passing of time and he would he, he would get tired and he'd come to bed and lay down but then he'd wake up and 
well, he wouldn't really go to sleep, but he would plan to go to sleep. But then an idea would come to him and he'd get up. That that would happen several times in the night. And fortunately, I was a very good sleeper. It didn't bother me at all. But, uh, <laughs> that, well, that's the way he worked. He would, uh, so as he was going off to sleep and dismissing this stuff from his mind, it would uh, bubble up from his, his magic treasure box. But he was just such a storyteller. I feel like it, it just seems like the stuff was kind of pouring out of him all the time. Oh, yeah. It was just, uh, especially when he was younger, it, 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 the ideas, he couldn't write them down fast enough. He couldn't write them down fast enough. And many of the people he worked with took his ideas and, and ran with them. And he was completely unguarded about those things as well. You know, he, he would just say them outright and people would say, that's a great idea and go do it. <laughs> so, so, but that's all right. You know, he, he sort of said, well, let them have, you know, I, I have more ideas. I have more ideas. It doesn't matter. So he didn't want to pour, be quarrelsome. Although wow. he was pretty, he could be a pretty, uh, he could be a pretty uh, nasty guy sometimes. So was that, uh, in terms of his ideas and, and the germination and the sort of the beginnings of Alien uh, being, you know, being called memory in the beginning and then being called, you know, Star Beast. Or wait, yeah. Was, yeah at, is it really like the kind of, the way into the documentary is to kind of explore the mind of Dan O'Bannon. Like, um, because obviously I've, I've seen interviews with, with him many, um, thanks to Fox and all of their re-releases and documentaries and Charles de Zurica, who's done some incredible documentaries. Um, and just hearing him talk, you could just see it in his face and how excited he would get when he would talk about things. And he just seemed also very jovial, but, um, and I know a lot of people sort of pivot to the studio, 20th Century Fox or Giger or or uh, Ridley Scott. But really, uh, we have O'Bannon to thank for the monster, for not just the monster, because I think the monster is just a piece of the puzzle. It's those characters that set up. I mean, it's that setup has been copied how many times since he came up with it? I mean, dozens and dozens of times in films where a crew wakes up or they set down on a planet. They don't know what they're doing. Even, of course, the alien films themselves have repeated that same trope uh, because right. he wrote it. Yeah. Um, well, it's it was... You know, it used a lot of standard kind of uh, space things, but com completely new. I mean, the, I, I, he was the first to, to do the used, you know, used spaceship, the old, uh, old, the spaceships that were already old and things like that. So, um, but he, that's the way his mind worked. He was, he was a complete original, complete original, really. Uh, and the, the macabre and bizarre Lovecraftian elements were completely in sync with Giger, who was also a fan of Lovecraft, by the way. But another thing that, uh, that will be of interest is that um, when Dan uh, started talking to Ridley, he, uh, he took him to see a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he said, you know, this is the level you're going to have to get to to shock people. This is the latest, you know, gut-wrenching thing that people are fleeing the theaters. So he kind of gave him a couple of uh, a couple of science fiction films to watch, and um, I think that helped. And of course, Ridley being a genius, Giger being a genius, Dan O'Bannon being a genius, and um, Moebius worked on that. The artwork, Ron Cobb, 
all of these terrifically, uh, I mean, Dan brought Ron Cobb in. I guess, I guess it was, uh, I guess it was Giger that brought Moebius in, or maybe it was Dan. Anyway, Dan brought all these people that he had met and worked with in Paris, uh, you know, shoehorned them onto the project. So it was just uh, delightful. Uh, you know, Dan himself was a very good artist, so he he um, he had great rapport with these people. And he also was an actor. He did a lot of acting, and so he was knowledgeable and could speak to actors. And and he did makeup when he was in college. He do he'd do summer stock and, uh, and do makeup and plays and things. So he was. He was really a polymath, a um, man with many, many talents, and he was terrifically funny person. I used to call him the uh, missing Marx brother, you know. Well, you know, it had that sort of loony aspect. I mean, he would... <laughs> it, 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 in interviews, he kind of comes across like that a little bit. You kind of see that. Yeah, well, if you yeah. if you look at Dark Star, Pinback is this sort of crazy guy and uh the diary scene i don't know if you've ever watched that but you can google you know dark star diary scene and uh and get it and it's absolutely brilliant he came with he came up with that at the spur of the moment to as filler yeah it's uh, like a it's like a practical joke right well it, it's uh no it's it, the diary scene he's he, he's venting he's sitting in front of his his video recorder venting his private thoughts. It's video diary. If you have to look at it, it's really funny. Oh, I haven't but, seen that in but, so long. I gotta watch that again. I do not like the men on this spaceship. They are uncouth and fail to appreciate my better qualities. I have something of value to contribute to this mission if they would only recognize it. Today, over lunch, I tried to improve morale and build a sense of camaraderie among the men by holding a humorous round-robin discussion of the early days of the mission. My overtures were brutally rejected. These men do not want a happy ship. They are deeply sick and try to compensate by making me feel miserable. Last week was my birthday. Nobody even said happy birthday to me. Someday this tape will be played and then they'll feel sorry. Yeah. Uh, it, anyway, Pinback is a bizarre version of Dan's true self. Not quite that that uh, bad, but you know, uh, a complete nerd. Complete nerd. <laughs> that's awesome. And and that's where he met Ron Cobb, right? Because did they work together on Dark Star? I think. Yeah, Dan uh, was always interested in artists, and uh, he'd seen a lot of Ron Cobb's work in the local free press at that time. You know, everything was real rebellious and stuff. And Cobb was doing a lot of cartooning and things like that. So he sort of forced himself on Cobb and forcefully introduced himself. And I think Cobb thought he was sort of a weird guy. And what <laughs> this poverty-stricken film student, you know, who would come around and say, gee, I love your work. Um, and, uh, so when, it, when, uh, he and Carpenter were going to do Dark Star, Dan said, oh, I know a perfect guy to do the, to do the dark, design the Dark Star and all this stuff. So, um, he went and got Cobb and Cobb did the design for the Dark Star. And that was so they wrote about that. Then Cobb's career took off in film and he has Dan to thank for that, which he does, which is nice. When you met Dan... Um, I don't, and were you with him kind of every step of the way to, as, uh, 
memory and then Starbeast uh, took shape? Certainly not. No, no, no. Couldn't stay around Dan O'Bannon too long. He was too <laughs> hot. Get burned. It's like, okay. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he was a wild man and I was busy too. So, um, no, I would, I would go over there and uh, it was, yeah, I mean, think of it. I mean, I'd go over there and he'd have been writing in his, in his dingy rooms and I would just read this marvelous, marvelous stuff that nobody would ever heard of before. Uh, before Alien, he wrote something called They Bite. And uh, it's been around town for years and years and had, has been pieces of it have appeared everywhere because everybody's re read it. But it was about, uh, uh, you know, how the dinosaurs really died. You know, there were these uh, like cicada-like bugs that only appear every five million years. That's their like life cycle, and they're coming out of the ground and pulling up these giant plugs, and they they come out and eat things and um, take on the appearance the false appearance of these things, you know, and every time they evolve, they get better. If they eat a dog, they look like a dog. If they eat a tire, they sort of change into the shape of a tire and thing. Dan was also, personally, he was like always creeped out by things that, you know, like Katie did that look like leaves or stick insects. Mm. And stuff. You know, it's like, oh my God, it's pretending to be something, but it's alive. So that was a personal phobia of his that he, that he brought into, um, brought into his work, which is really effective because everybody else scared of that stuff too, right? <laughs> Do you remember him uh, ever talking about The Thing, the 1982 version? Uh, the Carpenter the, film? Oh, Carpenter? No, uh-uh. No. Well, because I'm, I'm thinking he probably would have, in addition to his relationship with Carpenter, the fact that it's about like mimicry and, and horror, I feel like he probably would have liked that movie quite a bit. And, and it's always uh, reminded me a lot they, of Alien. You know, they were talking about uh, doing... Uh, they bite at the time. They were discussed. Oh, cool! At the time, they were discussing these things, and then Carpenter used the concept in the thing. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it's very hard to determine who comes up with stuff. You know, when you're speaking with somebody you're planning to do something with, you can't exactly, you know, one person bings off another's idea and things like that. So you can't really tell where these things came from. I've never seen it, so. Um, well, I, I think there's something really beautiful about that, though, that I, I don't I don't want to say we, we're kind of losing as a society, but the, there's something about the openness of the exchange of ideas and not being too precious about sort of intellectual property when it's in development before it's like, I really love that idea that like he was a brilliant guy with all these brilliant friends and everybody was having great ideas. And it was sort of like, you know, it was fair game. You sort of bring up your crazy stuff. And if somebody takes it and runs with it, you don't like, you know, track them down well, <laughs> after the yeah, fact. Well, you know, I mean, when they started making millions of dollars and he still couldn't afford rent, it, it got a little sour, but, uh, right, right. uh you know, I mean, he 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 was satisfied in the end that he'd had the kind of effect on the world I think he wanted to have. He 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 was satisfied with his work, although it was not often, say, with Total Recall, uh, it was you know, uh, and Blue Thunder both were changed. Uh, well, they, it always gets changed, and that always upsets the writer. But I think, uh, well, I know in the end he was said, well, I. 
you know, I sort of kicked the world's butt around a little bit. So I think he was happy with that. I think that's what he wanted more than he wasn't going for the the dough, really. Yeah. Well, he definitely kicked the world's butt, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess so. I'm curious, like, what, uh, and this is one of the questions that we sent you, like, what science fiction he was getting into, even after Alien, but, like, what was, aside from Forbidden Planet, what type of things that he saw that he was like, okay, that speaks my language? He watched everything. He watched literally everything. Star Trek, Star Trek Next Generation. He actually thought the original Star Trek was kind of lame. Oh. Uh, like <laughs> Star Trek yeah. Next Generation better. And he said, oh, I don't know. I think he did, he objected to the smallness of the sets and that sort of stuff. He, at mm. the time, I remember him going, it's not enough, it's not good enough. Which, you know, was, you know, people don't like to hear that, you know. Uh, but that's the way he was. He, he, you know, he, he would tell you frankly that he didn't like it and that doesn't go over big in Hollywood, but he watched everything. Um, he watched everything, read everything, fantasy, horror, science fiction. He read it all. What were his thoughts on some of like the popular franchises of, you know, for example, the eighties, like the, the, you know, like was he a big star Wars buff? Uh, not particularly a big star Wars buff. He thought it was great. Uh, he liked it. Um, you know, after, after, I don't think he, he saw more than the first two. I don't think, when did they keep coming out? I don't know. But he, uh, you know, he worked on the first Star Wars. He did, um, it affects work. He did special ah. effects computer, uh, the computer imaging. I did so he not worked, know that. He worked I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he's got a, he's got a, uh, his Star Wars T-shirt. We had that at USC for when uh, Jason Cinnamon was doing his book Shock Value. They screened some of Dan's student films and other people's student films, and um, we. So I brought out an exhibit of his work for Lucas on Star Wars. Yeah, that's so that. cool. That is so yeah. cool. Um, yeah. one other thing I want to just a small thing that I want to bring up and then I'll let Jamie get back to the sort of meat of the conversation. But uh, okay. Return of the Living Dead, I know, is a movie that people really it's become sort of beloved. And I'm wondering, oh. do you remember the experience of him making that? Like what what if what it was like for him? Um he had a terrible time <laughs> directing. <laughs> That's not what uh, I was hoping you would say. Yeah. Oh my God. No, he had a terrible time. It was his first directing job and um he 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 chided himself later. He said, I really did not know how to delegate well. And it was very low budget. And he had a couple of real incompetence doing things. And so he had to, or he felt he had to do a lot of it himself and um, to make it look as he wished. Um, but he admitted his failures on that as a, uh, as a director of, uh, you know, being able to, to delegate was mainly it, but he said, but I couldn't rely on some of these people, but, uh, it's one of my favorites. I, I, I adore Return of the Living Dead. It's so fun. And that's also where the whole brains thing came from, right? And, and uh, supposedly I, I read this a while ago in popular culture, the idea of zombies eating brains specifically, other than, as opposed to just eating people, uh, was your husband's idea. Well, yeah, but see, here's the thing. The old zombie thing was, if you kill the brain, you kill the ghoul. 
that was the same. So to right. kill the zombies, the zombies, the only way you could die was to destroy their brains. So there was that connection. But Dan, of course, turned it around and and made them want to uh, eat eat brains. That's what they were going. You know, if they needed a motivation. Why are these guys stumbling around here? You know, and what are they after here? And that seems like such a Dan O'Bannon thing. That's such a that's such like an O'Bannon trope. I think you have that like body horror kind of like the the eater of ideas thing going on. Oh, and it like takes something, something that we're familiar with and it yeah. makes it uh, freaky, you know? Yeah, I never thought of it, thought of it that way, the idea eaters. Ooh. Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but uh, I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. There's a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions said nothing that's funny what does it mean please don't do that thank you i'm sorry well it's an interesting combination of elements making him a tough little son of a bitch and you let him in so what would you feel just again just sort of your i i would say you kind of set the record straight for people who might know maybe things that aren't true or things are that are misappropriated. But what do you feel like are some misconceptions surrounding Dan? Well, um, I, you know, Dan, as I said, Dan could be really brutally honest and, uh, and sometimes cruel. And uh, that made people in high positions not want to work with him. That was not a misconception, but, uh, I think um, that, that I think he was nicer than people could tell. He was intimidating because he was so smart and he didn't suffer fools. But um, he was terrifically, uh, he was very vocal and uh, open in his appreciation of the people he worked with and promoted them. Um, I guess another would be... It, his hidden generosity. He he gave a lot of things to people. He would he would you know refer people for jobs and have them. Um, one person that he wrote some things with didn't have much, became quite ill, and he just gave him the profits from everything. He just said, you know, go ahead and go ahead and take it. This was after Alien, so he was comfortable. But uh, he was very open-handed with credit. He's always given credit to anyone who gave him an idea. He never claimed a, an idea he didn't have. He didn't. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. So um, I think the misconception that he was—he uh, stole ideas and was nasty—is the biggest misconception about the man. I used to call him my great heart. He was uh, a. a a man who was deeply touched by things and was a privately extremely generous person. What was your, what was your marriage like if you could sort of sum it up? What what was what was the experience of of living and loving together like with him? It was wonderful. We had a ball. You know, when I was going with him off and on for 13 years before we got married, he was my he was my favorite date, you know. It's like and what would we do? Well, we'd go to Hollywood in the middle of the night and prowl through the all-night bookstores, lose the blues, or, uh, you know, go to an all-night 
movies or um, you know go to go downtown to some obscure magic shop or something like that. He was absolute wonderful fun to be around. What did your parents think of him? Oh well, I was thirty at the time. I was about twenty-eight. My my parents didn't meet him until after we married. Oh, we were forty. We were forty when we got married. Oh wow. Yeah. So, so by that point, they couldn't, they couldn't be like, don't, don't take that boy, he's crazy. <laughs> no, but you know, um, it's an interesting thing if I can bring it up. Um, I have to tell you, my, my father himself was a big fan of science fiction, and was reading a lot of those old, astounding and amazing magazines when oh, I was yeah. growing up. So. Uh, it seemed very nat- natural to me when I met Dan that, you know, yeah, guys read science fiction a lot. And uh, uh, my father worked on the X-15 rocket. I don't know if you oh know. Oh, my God. And the Apollo Moon Project. So he was always interested. My father was always interested in astronomy. I mean, I could, I could point out Orion and booties and knew, knew about the planets and all of these sort of things. And... Um, you know, so that was always a, a part of my growing up. So it seemed really natural to run into a man who sat around, you know, obsessed with science fiction. <laughs> and you guys like had a son together. It seems, it seems like home. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, when, you know, we kind of go together and then he would do something weird and I would go, I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, then I'd go, I'd go, I wonder what doing. Gosh, I miss that guy. So, uh, when we got together, I was up in San Francisco. I was an art director for a computer magazine at the time. Invited him up, and, you know, we just hit it off. We'd always hit it off. And we sort of looked at each other and go, like, what are we doing? You know, why, let's let's be a family. Why, you know, why have we hassled each other all this time? And so once we decided that, we went, like, well, okay, uh, I'll be the wife and you be the husband. And and he said, you be the mom, and I'll be the breadwinner. I went, okay, and I'll cook. And you know, <laughs> so we sort of, you know, launched into a domestic life. Now, if you hear my son talk about it, you know, he said, you know, this you guys were always weird. And I said, what do you mean? You know, you're nicest <laughs> family, you know. I, I we never yelled at each other. We had a great time. So so yeah we had a we had a wonderful time and uh, he he was delighted because uh, he always he he had terrible taste in clothes so I dressed him you know I'm going oh no wear this so I'd get him shirts and you know put on the bow tie and wear this and blah 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 yes, so yeah you know, it, sort of, it was like weirdly conventional for being such odd an odd person but he was delighted with that he was ready for that you know he he. Um, he was through being the guy who uh, scared the shit out of the world. I guess. <laughs> he kicked enough, kicked enough ass in his, in his time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I want to bring up something super minor, and then I want to get back right okay. on the track, but I don't want to forget about it. Have you seen First Man, the film? No, I haven't. Okay, you should. It's a great movie, but also it starts with an X-15 rocket flight, and it is one of the most viscerally interesting um portrayals of that particular ship that I've ever seen. And I think you'll, you'll get what I mean when you see it, but it feels oh. very real. And for you, it might be interesting to see it because it might be kind of like uh, seeing your, your dad, you know, a little bit. Oh, absolutely. No, I got yeah. many pictures. In fact, um, I just got, uh, I'm just going to send some of that. I've, I've been shuffling it out to send it to the Smithsonian. 
a wow. space museum. See if they want that, you know, because my father um, was project manager on um, on the X-15 and um, the um, the uh, the the uh, capsule, the you know the um, the Apollo capsule, and um, so he's got a whole diary, bunch of the problems that went on and what they decided to do about it and things like that. Oh, that's so, so fascinating. We have a partner uh, named Dan. We do another podcast on the on Blade Runner, and Dan's loves uh, that kind of thing, and uh, he loves First Man. When we tell him what you've said, he's going to go crazy. Um, he's going to throw the phone out the window yeah. and, and scream that he wasn't involved in this. But that, that scene, it's it's amazing because, you know, what was so amazing about the X-15 is that it was capable of, you know, like a, basically traveling above what we think of as like this, the flight ceiling, you know, so it, it could it go. Was, in a big, it was space, the first right? thing to leave the earth, you know, the earth. It was the, right. the first manned, not, I mean, I'm talking Sputnik, but the, it was the first man, first manned vehicle in outer space. You got, you got to see this movie. I'm thinking. I, uh, I, I, I wrote it down. Get it. I'll, I'll good, 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 good. Um, I, I want to hear more about about you. I want to hear more about your background. And it sounds like you, like you. I mean, you've had such a fascinating life too. Can you just give us more about your career and your life, and you know, your life with your son and what's what's your story? Uh, you know, it's just a boring mom story. Um, I um, uh, really, I'm not very interesting at all. I just. Um, you know, grew up with a dad who who worked for, uh, you know, worked for the government all the time, put braces on my teeth. The Defense Department did, and um, uh, I, beca I became a graphic designer. And uh, so you're a designer by trade, a graphic artist. Yeah, that's yeah. what I did for a living. What kind of graphic art have you done? Have you done like you know like books or advertising or, or what, what kind of stuff? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. Well, I've done a lot of things. I did, um, but this was all pre-computer. As a matter of fact, I was working for a computer magazine in San Francisco as the art director. And at that time, they would put the, we'd had a, had a section on games, and they would put the game on the monitor, take a black box, put the 35 millimeter camera in a black box, surround it, and take a picture of it. And that's what wow. we would the 35 millimeter slide the very month i left to get to go be a wife and mother they i i would look at it, i'd say how come you cannot get it off that electronic machine and into this stuff like the type how come you can't do this and the very month i left they finally were able to just take it electronically and and take it to printing without going through a a um you know, a, a 35 millimeter slide, basically. So that was 86. That was 1986. So that's the time, last time I worked for money. But uh, since Dan died, the minute he died, I, I, I ceased being his wife and became his manager. It was, it was a very, very odd situation because I, of course, did not react to his death in any other way than as a wife, but the world soon came knocking and um, you realize you have to get your act together and, and do a good job, you know, and, and uh, represent him. So that's what, what was that. Was, what was, what was that like that, that process of sort of transitioning into that role? Was it something that you felt compelled to do? Was it something that you did as part of the grieving process? Like what, what was that like for you? 
Well, it was terrifically it was terrifically hard to do because I was still grieving. It basically took me four years to get over it. I know it sounds like a long time, but I would continually be sort of going along and doing okay. But uh, when I would have to, you know, delve deep, like say this interview, if I'd have to do this interview right after he died, I would be depressed for another week before I'd crawl out of the hole. But it doesn't bother me now. I feel I feel good about it. I feel it's enjoyable for me to talk about him and to promote him because I think he was a wonderful person and did wonderful, wonderful work and wish more of it would appear, as a matter of fact. Now, well, I, 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 speaking personally, just super briefly, Jamie, and then I'll get back to you in a second. I, I just have personally noticed a real shift in fandom towards highlighting your husband's um, place in Alien. Because for a long time, I think it, it was all about Ridley, and and I, I, you know, I, I'm not bashing Ridley Scott in any way, right. but his personality and his sort of force of natureness, I think, has made it seem in a lot of sort of popular culture for a long time that he is the reason Alien is what it is, and I've noticed a lot of the time, especially over the last few years, a shift where fans will say, now it's Dan O'Bannon is where Alien came from. Ridley was a huge part of it, but without Dan, you don't have Alien. And I and I've noticed that this this coming up more and more and more frequently, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with with you, Diane, with your efforts. Um, but also, I think it has to do with a lot of us growing up having loved these properties so much and sort of researching more where they came from and realizing there was the guy that started this. And yeah. What a yeah. brilliant man he must have been. Yes, well, he was, and you can detect it. And, you know, Dan always had great respect for the audience. Uh, if you look at um, a silly zombie movie, you know, Return of the Living Dead, it's extremely erudite in a very hidden way. You know, uh, my favorite line, you know, this is this is no costume, this is a way of life, you know? I mean, these are, <laughs> these are elite concepts, you know, coming out of the mouths of suicide and the, you know, and right. these... Uh, you know, these punks. So, uh, and when, when people would laugh at that, he got, that's what, he, that's what he enjoyed was, uh, that clever, uh, intelligence and humor. Yeah. He really was good at that. <laughs> now here's a, an odd question. Uh, of course you, you're kind of the keeper of his legacy, um, in, in all regards, his, his, uh, you know, familial legacy. You've had a son. Um, but did you like alien when you first saw it? Were you like, Oh wow, this is great. Or were you like, Oh, I don't know what to think about it. Like, and of course you, you talk about it a lot. Like you've said is that it is in your life, this creature, you know, I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, did it, were you always kind of on board? Like, Whoa, this is an amazing piece of art. Or were you first were like, I don't know. Like, how did, how did that happen? Oh, no, happened? I thought, I thought it was brilliant. Okay. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see it right away. I. It was. I wasn't really seeing Dan at the time. I. I don't know. He did something. I just like wasn't. It was like too much Dan O'Bannon. So I didn't see it right away. But I heard everybody talking about it, and this was more more intriguing to me to kind of listen to what everybody said about it before I saw it, because of course everybody was talking about it. I. Can, I was flying to New York. It was interesting. I was flying to New York shortly after it came out, and. The, the the guys in the behind me and the seats behind me were talking about it. So I heard their conversation all the way to New York. They were analyzing the writer. You know, they say, oh, well, he must have had difficulty with his mother. He's calling this computer <laughs> and this sort of stuff. That's awesome. So, so oh, was, my God. 
Yeah, it was very interesting to eavesdrop on uh, on Alien. And then when I saw it, of course, it was, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Ridley is brilliant. It would not have been as good without uh, a Ridley. The director's always given more credit. Um, I don't know why that is, uh, but that's how they tout everything like it's all the director doing it and and then comes next comes the actors because they're saying the words and people think that actor is brilliant and it's the writer you know it's the writer that's back there um so that's that's kind of a battle that writers always uh, fight but as as you say uh, as fans get a little older and they realize wait a minute there's more behind here uh they they do discover the the brilliance of the writer and um, also, you know, Ridley's gone on and done other things, so he's not focused at all on Alien anymore. And uh, frankly, the the producers have, you know, uh, Guyler and Hill have uh, backed off. Well, they can't claim they wrote it because they'll all sue them and they'll get in trouble. So, uh, you know, when the others back off from, you know, you know, failure has one father or, you know, success has a hundred fathers. So as that has calmed down, you know, the, the real, the real genius shuffles out and it's Dan and Ridley and Giger and, you know, the, the effects people and the actors, Sigourney was perfect and, Everybody was perfect. It was wonderful. So it was luck. It's luck, too. You know, you have to have all of these things, and you have to have luck. But it's luck that these a good script was not destroyed. It's luck that you got a great director who was right there with the look and how to do it, up to the minute on what would shock people, um, brilliant artists. You know, it does, it's, it's luck. And you also had, as as outlined in the documentary that I mentioned, you had Hodorowski's Doom collapse, and then like half of the creative team from that kind of just end up working on Alien together. Well, that's um, what Dan did. Alien Dan went and got him. <laughs> right, that was that was Dan's contribution, and well, I mean one of many of his contributions. But yeah, what's crazy exactly. is it was like the most brilliant. It, got the effects team and showed Ridley. You know, you got to rip the people's guts out, and here's sci-fi for you. And right. Yeah, so he was the man behind the curtain, that's for sure. It's crazy, and and all of those people would not be there. I mean, it's it's easy, it's becoming easier to look at at Dan as sort of the 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 place where aliens sprung from. The true father. But he of also, it, really. the, yeah, the progenitor. But also, he's why those people were there. I mean, he is actually like at the center of the creative team behind this thing, and that that creative team is one of the best ever assembled in film. And and I'm saying that not just as a as a crazy fan, but as like somebody who. Uh, you know, studies film, and I, I really think that that is one of the best creative teams ever, and your husband was behind that. I'm wondering, uh, it, along those lines, when he would meet people, what yeah. was he like? Like, what 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 was his personality like when you met him for the first time, and why do you think he ended up attracting all of these incredible people to work with him and to believe in his visions for things? Well, because he was visionary himself. He was equal to those people. He was as good an artist as any of them. Well, not, perhaps not Moebius. He says, you know, Moebius is sweet, generous. He's just one of a kind. Um, but he was, he could hold, he, he held his own with all of these international intellects and artists. That was his milieu. And what would they talk about? 
when they were just hanging out? Like, would they ever just sort of be around the house, any of these people? And no. what, what, what was it like? Oh, no. I wasn't even married to him then. He okay. was over in London for Alien and in Paris for Dune. I wasn't there. But I got some I got I got some letters about his impressions of it. You know, he was just a boy from the Ozarks. He was from uh, you know, uh, southern St. Louis. He was in from little Podunk Winona, Missouri, south of St. Louis. And he didn't even they didn't even have a telephone till he was like ten. So he is uh, there was no library. His mother was um uh very well read. His parents were very well read people. Uh but to just like to be down there in the middle of nowhere. And they didn't even have a library. His mother used to um, get uh, write up lists of books, mail that to the library in St. Louis, and they would mail the books to her. And oh read that, that she'd mail them back. That was the service. I think you can still get that service uh, from the libraries. You, you, well, there, there's like the the intercat system, which I actually use out here. Where you know, if if they don't have it, but I mean, we do have a library that's down the street from from us. Right. But if 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 they don't have the book that we want, we can submit you know a request to another right. one. Right. They'll Milton, ship it, which, you know, which is pretty yeah. cool. I actually use that a lot too. Yeah, but they yeah they used to ship books. I mean, that was, of course, in the you know in the fifties, that was a lot more common. The a lot of little, uh, you know, little towns and stuff couldn't afford their own libraries, and and I'm sure they still do it. I'm sure they still do it. So you think his his parents and and their erudition and the fact that they were so well read, do you think that kind of rubbed off on him and might have gotten him thinking about sort of bigger things and and moving away and doing this kind of stuff? Oh, I don't know. His his father was sort of crazy, uh, brilliant, brilliant people, but um, uh, they he basically ran a a curio shop off the highway. Um, called Odd Acres. That's where Dan grew up in Odd Acres, and they had a, a stream that, ro- you know, flows uphill, and a room where you, you know, you've seen these roadside things have little, you know, the, little sawed pieces of woods with sayings printed on them and ashtrays and magic tricks. His father had magic tricks, and um, uh, with this room where you, you know, it was built at an angle and you stand up and get your picture taken and you're, you look like you're at an angle. Um, so <laughs> That's awesome. Home. Yeah. And little stuff like that. So he, he grew up in the curio shop and, uh, his father uh, was extremely brilliant. They were all in Mensa. His father used to write music and everything. Um, they, um, he would fake UFO landings. Like to oh fake fool people and fake UFO landings. I've got the clippings <laughs> from that. And and occasionally, you know, some people would come around like, oh, oh, Tom, is this where it was? Let me take you out to where it was. And he'd you know, <laughs> go out there and, you know, with the, he was one of the guys who would go out and do a torch in a circle. And then he'd have, oh you know, pieces together and take blurry pictures of it and make make fools out of the people who believed him. So oh, that that's so cool. Background. That was his background. You well, was it wasn't too stable. They were they were a little cuckoo, but brilliant. <laughs> you read to me a quote from Dan that I, I if, would you mind reading that to me again or to us? I scared the shit out of them with Alien. Although the film is a full collaboration between several geniuses and a couple of morons, one thing stands out to me at least as exclusively mine and nobody else's except in as much as they were serving my concept is that is the attitude or point of view of the film macabre, bizarre, 
scary Lovecraftian. Tell me that came from anybody else. The only other person on the film with that outlook is Giger, who I went and got. I scared the shit out of the world. Just revenge. It scares the shit out of me. That's fantastic. I think I could write. <laughs> he Indeed, he could. Oh, you know, I got to mention his writing book. Uh, after he died, I managed to get that published by Michael Weesey Productions. It's called Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. And if you want to hear his voice, you can download it or, you know, get an ebook or buy the paper uh, version of it. But it uh, gives the wisdom of how to put a film together and uh, how, how the dynamic the system is called dynamic structure. So if you, you're interested at all in how a screenplay can rise up off the page and walk off, uh, you know, look at Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. It's a very good book. Has his writing, uh, has that writing bug, that creative bug, uh, blossomed in your son? Well, you know, he really sort of avoids it, but he's a very, very good writer. He yeah. said, no, no, that's dad's stuff. That, I don't want to be compared to my father. No, no, that's fine. I understand. But he's, fan, he's a fantastic writer, just naturally. So he, it, at some point, he'll probably do He has done, no, he doesn't want to, no. <laughs> Um, That's all there um, is to that. With it being the 40-year anniversary of Alien, will you be involved in any... I mean, I know that there's the thing going on in USC, that sort of ongoing event, which I'm actually going to go to, um, me and a friend of mine out here are going to go to. Is there anything that you might, uh, uh, an appearance you might make to kind of discuss the film and just kind of the 40-year history of, of Alien? Well, that uh, exhibit at USC will be... Uh, starting the 25th and run till May 15th. Okay. So you got a lot of time. If people want to go down to USC and see it, I don't know, you know, contact the school and find out how to do that. Um, but um, what else? I'm sorry, what did you say? I was just curious maybe if there's if there's going to be like a 40-year screening oh. or maybe a reunion, if you might be a part of something like that. Oh, you know, I don't really know of anything right now, but... If I find anything and am doing more, I'll post it on um, Dan's, uh, the official Dan O'Bannon fan page, Facebook page, the official Dan O'Bannon fan Facebook page. So I'll be I'll be putting it up uh, on on his Facebook page if there is anything. But things are starting to pop, and I'm hearing from a lot of different people, and I'm in touch now with uh, Fox. Fox archivists and we'll oh, see that's what goes. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. One last question that I have. Um, and then if anything else, Patrick, you want to ask, I just, I'm curious about what were some of Dan's projects or maybe even some of his personal things that he was working on for himself, like whether they were stories or screenplays or whatever, what was he, what were some of his dream projects that he kind of had surrounding him? Well, alien? um, he wrote, just for his own pleasure, on spec, two screenplays. Uh, one, the first is What Mad Universe, which is really kind of a fun, off-the-wall uh, science fiction novel by Frederick Brown. And he, he wrote the screenplay just because he loved the story so much. So, you know, he didn't have the rights to it, and I don't think anybody knows where the rights are. We tried to get it and can't figure it out. I think the original writer... Uh, uh, who had the rights, sold them to the guy, he, the bar 
he traded it for drinking money. <laughs> And no one, nobody can find them. Oh, my <laughs> God. That is a great exactly. story. Exactly. He had a big bar tab. He says, hey, I'll give you these in exchange if you write off my bar tab. So that's how, you know, that's how things get lost. And the, <laughs> other, the, other, the other thing he did was, um, uh, for the same reason, just because he loved it, wanted to see if he could work it and make it work as a film, was The Star's My Destination, uh, a novel by Alfred Bester. Again, he enjoyed interpreting these, uh, like Phil Dick, he loved interpreting uh, great writers and and seeing if he could get the essence of the feeling that they gave him into the screenplay. He was very successful at that. You know, he was the greatest uh, interpreter of Phil Dick you'd ever want to see. Um, did, did he know Philip K. Dick? I, you know, I think he met him uh, once, but I'm... We, I have some stuff signed by him, but I, he did meet, he did meet Phil Dick, but I, it was very late. I think he died like two weeks later or something. Right. Right. But, um, yeah. So, uh, we have a couple of other screenplays that, uh, I would like to see produced, but, uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be much interest. I say, well, you know, they're sitting here and you'll get about $50 million of free, um, <laughs> free publicity if you make one dude so we'll see do you ever get tired of talking about all this um no no i don't that's um i love talking about my husband he was a brilliant and wonderful man and i'm proud to do that yes well i i I have i have i have just one one more question that i want i have a comment and then i'll toss it back to jamie to to close, my my question simply is: Where is the best place for fans to keep up with everything that Dan has done? Is it the Facebook page? Is what do you recommend? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I do have a website, but I haven't updated it since he died. I just can't. Um, um, I I really can't figure out what to do with it. I have a lot of stuff, and um, I don't necessarily want to put up the stuff that hasn't been produced, and I don't necessarily want to clog it up with. I don't know. There's just, there are legal problems with putting screenplays up that have already been produced. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's sort of too much for me. Um, so if anything is going on, I do it on the Facebook page. I alert people, but, um, I'm not, you know, heavily active there. I'm not, I'm not promoting, this is not, that's not my job. You know, my job is to, um, to talk like this when there's an opportunity and, and, uh, and uh, be the cheerleader here. Um, I'm not really, you know, we're not selling anything. I'm not active online selling stuff or Dan O'Bannon shirts or, or, you know, um, you know, pin back outfits or, you know, whatever. Video diaries, right? They have a presence and why they want to knock on everybody's email door all the time. I don't, don't need to do that. Don't want to do that actually. Well, if you ever decide that you are looking for guidance or help or anything on any of that stuff, just just know that you've got a great support system of alien fans around the world who respect and admire everything that Dan did. And if it's as simple as just, you know, putting up a post and we'll share it and, you know, help connect you with anybody who wants to, you know, volunteer to help on the site or anything, there's, um, you know, don't, don't feel like uh, there's no support there for you in this because there's a lot of love for him um, and for you out there. Um, my only my, my comment is, you know, 
you mentioned, uh, you know, that you that you that your life has been, you know, you said it kind of offhandedly, but kind of just, you know, boring mom life. But I, I just want to say, I really beg to differ. I feel like your your story is just so interesting, and getting to talk to you, you know, just this hour tonight has been. I'll never forget it. You know, you have amazing stories to tell. Thank you. And you're, your you're journey very is. Kind. You're very kind. Well, I mean it. It's just it's it's not every day you get to talk to somebody who's lived such a fascinating life, and and I'm I'm really just honored and on behalf of both of us that you took the time for us. And I'm so glad that this will go out to the fans of the show and the fans of the franchise. And they'll be able to get such a personal connection, not only to, to Dan O'Bannon, but also to you, because, you know, a lot of his art came from his life with you. And I think that that is something really special. So, so thank you for everything as well. Absolutely. Oh, you're very, you're very welcome. Thanks for asking. It's fun to talk about. And I, I just, uh, in closing, uh, I, I think it's really wonderful. You said this yourself, and as a writer myself, I understand that, especially in the world of movie making, the writer kind of gets the, the short end of the stick, and I think it's a really beautiful thing that the proper, um, just the the proper, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, I feel like it, it's time. It's it's just the right time to really honor Dan's legacy as the writer, as the progenitor, as the father, this film, these series of films wouldn't be here without him. Like I have this idea. I have this idea. I want to do this idea. And then, you know, those stories that we've heard him say in interviews or seen him say in interviews about sleeping on his friend's couch, barely having any money that, that starving artist, that process, you know, um, I, I just, I think it's a wonderful thing that it's finally being fully recognized. So thank you so much for being a part of that. Well, thank you for being a part of that. Uh, it warms my heart. It really does. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you, Diane. My pleasure. Nice to meet you guys. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.